you are being watched. The government has a secret system, a podcast that recounts every episode of Person of Interest. I know because we made it. We designed the podcast to continue our bullshit, but we see everything. Random numbers of the week, people like you. Episodes the average viewer deems irrelevant. You wouldn't watch it, so we did. But I needed partners. Someone who had never watched this before. Hunted by weirdos on the internet, we record in secret. You will never find us. But, newbie or diehard, if your episode's up, we will find you. Hello, and welcome to the library for Podcast of Interest. This is a rewatch podcast for Person of Interest, featuring two veteran operatives and one newly initiated. My name is Justin, and joining me are my two associates, my veteran operative Jude and our new recruit, Anna. Jude, Anna, what's the worst reason you've gone to the hospital? Wolf. Uh, cancer? That you're willing to share. Okay, yeah, if you're willing to share. Yeah. <laughs> I uh, have never gone to the hospital. Congratulations. Oh. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, I had cancer. That's a real, that's, okay, yeah. That's a, that's a, I mean, not a good reason to go to the hospital. Valid reason. Yeah. 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 I thought so. All right. So tonight we are uh, covering episodes three and four of season one, which are Mission Creep and Cura Te Ipsum. Um, I believe that Jude has Mission Creep, so take us away. Yeah, I do. Uh, episode three, Mission Creep, written by Patrick Harbinson, directed by Stephen DePaul. Uh, our number of the week is Joey Durbin, a former soldier in the 107th, freshly home from Afghanistan. In the course of their initial observation, Reese and Finch note that he's got a fiance, a boring doorman job, and also that he robs banks when he gets weird text messages. That's fun. John gets caught in the bank and ends up on Carter's radar again, thanks to his fingerprints being found on the scene of the crime. They also discover that Joey is giving large amounts of his bank robbing money to another woman. Scandal! We learn a bit about Carter's background in the course of her investigation when she recognizes the robber's tactics and radios as military. She suspects John may be part of the gang and starts investigating. Uh, she gets a lead via the radios on the gang. Later, John meets them, and after a less than cordial introduction, he's in. He arranges to run into Joey at a bar, and they chat about the gang's organizer, Latimer, beat up some bankers, and bond a little. Later, he surveils another member talking to Latimer, and Latimer being shady as fuck. John's first job with the crew ends up being a mob gambling den, just the kind of place you want to knock over, seems fine. But things go sideways when the cops follow their lead and track the crew. John fakes listening to the police band in his earwig to get them out, but the job is a bust, leading to them taking on an even more dangerous job, stealing evidence from police lockup. John tries to talk Joey out of doing it, but Joey is trying to set up his dead squad mate's daughter for college, so he takes it. Latimer makes it clear to the others that John isn't to survive the job. But since John's phone was destroyed as part of the job prep, Finch has to go into the lockup pretending to be a civilian to warn him. They have a brief exchange which is caught on surveillance video, which attracts Carter's attention. The crew steals a box labeled Elias, and when they turn it over to Latimer, he kills two of the crew. Surprise! John and Joey barely escape. 
John gives him a wad of cash and tells him to run and take his fiance. John and Carter have a tense conversation via radios before he vanishes again to track down Latimer. Latimer, however, has turned uh, has turned over the ice box and gotten his payment. Two shots to the heart. This week's flashbacks are about John. We see him running into Jessica at an airport. She says she waited for him and he says not to. That everyone is alone in the end. Her reply is that he's just afraid and it would be really brave of him to tell her to wait. He doesn't until she's walked away and cannot hear him. My God, was that, that was a June summary? I know, right? I, I tried my very best to be succinct, as was requested. I'm shook. I don't promise I will be that succinct in all our episodes. Some of these episodes will defy my ability to be succinct, but this was a very, this was a pretty standard number of the week episode, yeah, so there, there wasn't a lot to dunk on. There, so this is, this is part of a overarching series of numbers of the week that I will that I will dub boring white dude who is doing something for a girl. <laughs> um, I think it's composed about I would say 30% of all numbers. Like just from like completely like eyeballing it. But like yeah. dude doing something dumb for a girl he loves or has responsibility to while having a exactly no characterization on his own that's like a good that's a good chunk of these um these are probably my least favorite numbers and the only thing that saves this one is bank robbery yeah this is a the only thing that makes this episode interesting other than elias yeah is the elias box yeah is the connection to a plot that will develop later and watching and finch's willingness to put himself in Again, his willingness to put himself in danger, but this time it's for John, not for the number, which I think is really interesting. And the two of them are basically ready to burn the number and turn him over to the police and wash their hands of the whole thing. Finches. This episode does establish John's weakness for military guys. Yeah, this is he's got a couple like soft spots and like abandoned vets are one of them. Yeah. John always gives a vet an extra inch that he doesn't give other people. I love that Elias is just like, it's my time. I'm just going to steal a box with my name on it from lockup. Sure. I'll have other people do it, but nobody will guess that it's me behind this since it's my name on the box. It's about, you know, I mean, I, I just think it's funny that he spent like all this time being behind the scenes, invisible, extraordinarily unknown. And then he just goes and just has this box stolen. He doesn't have the, the place burned down to, to conceal the evidence. He doesn't have like 20 boxes stolen. It's yeah. One box. One. Yeah, well, well, just his box. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is the rise of Elias, as we will detail as that yeah. plot develops. But it's his time. Uh, that my other, probably my, I have two favorite scenes in this episode. Uh, the first one is when the banker says, it's a knowledge economy now. Time to use this, okay? Or time to use this and points to his head. And John, again, I, I was about to say deadpan, but John doesn't have anything that's not deadpan. Uh, <laughs> just says, okay, and then headbutts him, which is the most predictable possible response for John to give to that scenario. You see it coming like six seconds away, oh, yeah. but it's yeah. still fucking great. It's, so, it's like, so satisfying. 
Yeah, it's so satisfying. Um, the other is John and Carter. I think they might be flirting on the radio there. Oh, this like little cat and mouse thing is just like, yeah. Is, is yeah. John capable of flirting though? I mean, he, he, I'll, yeah. I mean, he is though. Here he, I feel like he is with Carter in this scene. Yeah. This is one thing that I think I'm interested to see how you view it. I guess at the time, I wasn't watching it, but at the time, there was like significant argument as to whether or not like the Carter Reese shipping was very controversial in the sense that like some people were super into it and some people were like, what are you seeing? Like Reese, what <laughs> I can do you- take it or leave it. Yeah. There's more yeah, interesting but, ships. I think that the cat and mouse thing is inherent. See, see, here's the thing. But like the cat and mouse they have going on is inherently hot. It's just that like, <laughs> at least it, it's it's like it's an you could be like you could have two robots who do not feel human emotion doing this and i would so, find a way so, to ship uh, it. sinclair and sakai then <laughs> those, aren't robots. those aren't robots <laughs> <laughs> um i guess my point is like i'm interested to see if you think it was intended by the writers i or not i don't think it was intended i don't think so but it, but it's just the thing of like would you do, would you do that trope? It's just inherently hot. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. Like I'm sure I could ship Tommy Lee Jones and Harrison Ford in The Fugitive. Okay, I'm gonna <laughs> throw this out there. Weird. Uh, I'm sure that Aaron will cut this. Uh, I can't ship Harrison Ford with anyone. Okay. I don't know why. Uh, I don't know if this is because I've read The Courtship of Princess Leia too many times. <laughs> Or because I, like, know that he's just this cranky old, like, skeleton that apparently has been, like, shacking up with Callista Flockhart, who is, like, a weird female skeleton. But, like, I don't know. I just, for me, Harrison Ford is, like, the, like, opposite of, there's, like, no sexual energy associated with him. Even though I know, like, in the the Star Wars podcast, he was, like this huge like icon and don't get me wrong. Like I get why, but like, I look at it now and I'm just like, Nope. And this is how we know you're heterosexual. (laughs) Well, okay. Well, talk to me when the Obi-Wan show comes out and we'll have a different, it'll be a a very different conversation. I mean, (laughs) I like that. I'm literally, I am heterosexual in theory and I'm like defending. I'm like offended that you called me one. Uh, like, so, let's watch. Let's watch print. Uh, what? Let's watch. Uh, what's it called? Lords of Arabia, and then talk. Uh, real quick. So, or moving on. Um, I love how <laughs> like I like in this episode Carter gets a, a lot more front time. And yeah, she's a fucking boss. <laughs> like she's yeah. like immediately like oh these radios and this pic in this like grainy black and white big footage oh yeah i know those those are military issue okay what's the near okay we're gonna like narrow this down to basically like okay which uh you know okay it's from obviously this base let's find people for the last six months if they had any shipments she does the guy's job for him oh it's so yeah yeah she's just like here let me do your job for you you just do the scut work i'll do the thinking and she she's like easily the most competent person in like the entire NYPD. Yeah. Yeah, and I I want to throw it out there that <laughs> this is only a minor spoil that the fact that Carter, a black woman, is 
in every scene she's in, the most competent person in the room and is generally respected for that. Yeah, it's cool. Is kind of wild. Yeah, yeah, it's it's really nice. Like you don't it's never questioned that Carter is the most competent qu- person in the room unless it's by someone who wants to kill her because she's on to them. Yeah. <laughs> like and I think that's like and it's not to say that the show is like ignores racial tension. It definitely doesn't. But like Carter, it, the show just super respects Carter's abilities. And so it never disrespects Carter's presence in a room. Yeah, it's it's very I, refreshing. Yeah, and I think that's super cool. You know, and and even like I was kind of a little bit dreading, say, like Fusco, because at this point he's not he's not super well characterized in terms of like <laughs> at this point we don't quite know that he actually is a decent person. And like I was dreading having them paired up together. <laughs> Fusco's so afraid of Carter. I, 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 despite the fact that, like, they are two of my favorite character interactions of the show, just because they're two very different people, and I I, I love that. I thought that, like, you know, there's a potential that he was going to be, like, gross and racist, but he's not, and it's refreshing. Yeah, Yeah, well, one, because Fusco is fundamentally, like, a good guy, and, and two, because also I feel like, Fusco walks into that room and sees Carter and is immediately, immediately overawed. And it's just like, <laughs> also, I, yeah. let, me put it, let me put it this way. It's immediately clear between the two of them who's Dom and who's Sub. <laughs> I mean, and, like, I mean, I, I don't think, I don't think Fusco has had a moment where he is not a sniffling weasel of Snub, which is, I mean, that's, <laughs> yeah, I'm just saying. She puts him immediately into it, like, without even trying. It's just, like, he's immediately afraid of her in the right way. Uh, it's very good. Oh, speaking of Carter, I think this is the first time we get the we get info that she is ex-military. Yeah, It's I think implied so. in the first episode, but it's canon here. Um, yeah, she, like, I yeah, we get, like, think of, like, oh, yeah, I recognize that equipment there. Yeah. Yeah. And she talks about it, yeah. So I have, I have a fun... Thing with that with that equipment. So the the equipment's supposed to have come from Fort Drum. Fun fact: I grew up about two ish hours drive from Fort Drum, right next to the Adirondack Park. And so the house I grew up in was basically immediately under where they would do training air maneuvers. <laughs> so number one, I've seen some real spooky planes. Like, you know, I they, they they had like stealth bombers flying over us at some point when they were like shiny and new. Um, so that was that was a fun experience. And also just like, you know, it's like every every few weeks you just ha- have the like boom for the house where like every single window. <laughs> I thought you have to do the clap and you're like, wait, nope, nope. Yeah, I, I yes. I, I did not actually clap, but like yeah, yeah, it's the it's the thing where like every window in the house like suddenly rattles mm-hmm. and you're just like god fucking damn it. I know uh, Justin probably I know I can empathize with that. Justin probably can. Growing up in the Bay Area, were you are you young are you old enough to remember when Moffat wasn't completely mothballed and they had the air show down there? When I was growing up, so I grew up in the Bay Area in California and Moffat Field uh is a 
these days is a uh, NASA installation where like NASA does a bunch of work, but it used to be a military a base where the Navy and NASA and Air Force all work together on stuff. And they developed planes and stuff like that. And every year they had a, an enormous air show. And the Blue Angels still to this day do uh, maneuvers through the Bay Area mm-hmm. uh, every year. So it's extraordinarily normal to have the Blue Angels just like buzzing your work building uh, in San Francisco. <laughs> so you're trying to get work done. It's just you just hear the crack of the Blue Angels whipping by. I don't think like I remember seeing like a lot of like I remember like as like this was like elementary age, but it would have been like, yeah, I was like, I remember seeing like g- proper fighter jets. Yeah. That was probably the Moffat air show. Then you were probably, that was probably right. The last couple of years of the Moffat air show. That was some of my fondest memories are, are going to that Moffat air show with my, my grandma. Uh, she was a veteran, so she had access to the base. I used to drive by Moffat airfield like every day to work back when I worked at Mountain View. Yeah. Um, which there are, um, huge dirigible hangars. Yeah. Uh, oh, wild. Which are, which are a wild <laughs> thing to see, like, right on the side of the road. <laughs> um, so, and and now I'm just in the, uh, now I'm just in the, like, helicopter path from Walter Reed. So we get spooky helicopters going overhead frequently. Spooky helicopters. Also, so something that like on the on the terms of like hardware stuff, I find it very funny that we see that like John for his backup because <laughs> yeah. like so he so like the, the the guns he the gun he's given for like he's issued by Latimer's team like Latimer is like it's a, like a submachine gun but they filed down the the firing pin so to use yeah. so it won't won't actually like trigger a bullet. So he goes to his backup, which apparently he just has like a fully automatic Glock. <laughs> for his backup on this one which i don't think we ever see this one again but it's just it's very funny because it's just like yeah it's like it's the full it's like the glock 18 with like the ridiculously long magazine that's like twice the length of the gun and it's just like john where are you holding that on your person <laughs> <laughs> buddy buddy uh it's just a very funny thing for me because it's like yeah no you did that because it was the matrix <laughs> Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yep. It's like an iconic thing of the Bay Area. Um, like if you're going down, if you're going across two thirty seven specifically. <laughs> yeah, or if you're going down one hundred one because they're right there on one hundred one yeah. too. I'm sure those highway names are super interesting to to you uh, who've never lived or been anywhere in the Bay Area. Yeah, and it's one hundred one, not the one hundred one. You heathens. yeah, fuck you, SoCal. <laughs> This is a very specific thing. Um, <laughs> it's a very, very niche. It's all going to get cut. Oh, God, it should be. Uh, I hope it isn't. I hope Aaron respects the beef and, and leaves yeah. it in there. All right, let's 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 move on. Oh, I do have a I do have an I know that face from this episode. Oh, yeah, um, lay it on me. Latimer is played by Ruben Santiago Hudson, who um, has done a bunch of TV stuff. I know him. He was the captain on Castle. Yep. Yes, yes, I... Fuck, yes. That's how I know him from. Yeah. He's also on, like, Billions and other stuff. I He's just, like, in a lot of stuff and as, like, a random, you know, character yeah. actor, if I recall correctly. Yeah. Gotta respect our character actors. That's what the segment is for. Yeah. <laughs> All right. And next up, we have episode four, um, which is Cure to Ipsum. It is written by Denise Tay and directed by Charles Beeson. 
our number of the week is Dr. Megan Tillman, a physician at a local hospital who seems to be living a double life. When she isn't working 16-hour days at a hospital, she stays out all night frequenting cocktail bars. In their surveillance, they find a man named Benton, an investment banker who is a serial date rapist who uses roofies to subdue victims. At first, Reese and Finch believe that Megan is his next victim, but while surveilling Benton, they find that they are not the only one doing so, and that Megan is stalking him. They discover that Megan had a sister who was a victim of Benton's, who committed suicide after her assault. John speaks with Megan at a trauma survivor's meeting, and shares with her his uh, their hurt. They find that Megan is plotting to murder Benton. Megan abducts Benton, but Reese meets her at a rest stop. He convinces her that killing Benton would ruin her, and that she is a healer, not a killer. John takes Benton to a safe house, and the episode ends with a conversation between Benton and Reese about what to do with him. Our B-plot for this episode involves Fusco, who has a drug ring come after him after Stills went missing. Because, well, they lost that drug ring's money. Fusco enlists John help, and they are eventually able to intimidate the gang into leaving them alone. After Fusco tries to sell John out to the cartel. The episode ends with John blackmailing his way into transferring Fusco to the Homicide Task Force, where he is now sitting next to Carter. <laughs> and he, he gets Fusco in a promotion. Yeah, he does. Um, speaking <laughs> of Carter, she goes to speak with Finch under the alias Norman Burdett about the holdup. Carter tries to get more information out of him as she thinks he knew the masked man who held him up, which was actually Reese, but Finch denies it, saying he was scared. Um, That's the episode. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, this is a really, I mean, this is a really fucking intense episode. Yeah. Yeah. The B plot is like forgettable, but. I would say that the, the doctor plot here is one of the ones that like really like hooked me on the show and the way that the, the way that the episode ends with that, that scene between Reese and Benton. Yeah. The overlaying of the sister's, uh, voicemail over the episode throughout the run of it is very powerful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's, this is a rough episode uh, at times because it very bluntly deals with the uh, effect of, of sexual assault and trauma and, uh, and God, Benton is just such a piece of shit. Yeah. Like you want them to kill Benton. I'm pretty sure that John did. Oh, I'm 100% sure John did. I don't think there's any question uh, that that John did. And like, hey, and he had all of the like stuff to dissolve the body right there left for him. Yeah. Like yeah. She, that, that the doctor did all the prep for him. So all he did, all he had to do was murder the dude. Yeah. No, I'm 100% sure that, that, yeah. that John killed the guy. I just, that conversation and the guy's like, <laughs> the most emotion John has shown in this show so far is when Benton is like, I can see the good in you. And John like laughs in his face. Yeah. yeah. Like, <laughs> no, you don't. You're you like, I think, yeah. I think it's something that John is very aware of is that like, I, or at least that he believes about himself is that he is not a good person, which I think is fine. It's like, he, he doesn't think he's a good person and he realizes that sometimes you don't need a good person. Yeah. Yeah. And he's and I, that's part of like he doesn't want Megan to become a killer because like she is a good person. Yeah. Oh, and speaking of sound design, 
Um, so we, we've talked about the how good the sound design is on this show. Mm-hmm. That conversation between John and Benton, the sound design on that is absolutely stellar because it starts with the like it along with the cinematography because it starts with them they're they're in this like beautiful, you know, waterfront mm-hmm. villa, you know, with the yeah. big picture windows, you know, seated, you know, and it's very clean and pretty and relaxing. And it starts with like relaxing waterfront noises. And then slowly the the sinister music creeps in <laughs> until yeah. it has overwhelmed all of the other sound design. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very good. And it, it definitely sets up the, I think that that's part of what is really convincing that Ben did not survive that encounter. Yeah. Uh, There's some really good, like, this is another one, another episode where the, like, the number of the, it's it's a 99% procedural that has a, uh, which a lot of like the first half of the first season is where it's mostly numbers of the week, but it's putting pieces on the board. Yeah. And this episode puts some, some interesting pieces on the board. Like it, it introduces the idea that the machine at least in theory and how it's going to be presented through a lot of the show to start off at least is an impartial observer. Yeah. The machine, the machine is baby. But yeah, the machine is, it can see things, but it doesn't have the ability to judge them. And so it holds a district attorney who is going to kill someone over drug money, basically in the same exact light as a, woman who is going to avenge her sister's death. Yeah. And what I appreciated about it is that the, is that it, I think in a normal, sh- in a typical procedural, if there was a thing presented like this, Harold and John would have to be played against each other. And that would have to be the main thrust of the episode of like, one of them would say, we have to like, we have to stop her. And the other would say, we have to let her, or we, ha- we can, we, we should let her. But in, yeah. but instead they both come to the idea of this dude should die, but we shouldn't have a good person killing him. Yeah. So we should just do it ourselves. Yeah, which which is I think a, a very like <laughs> I think it's a very interesting way of looking at it. And it's like and there's no there's yeah. no like like John tries to set up Benton by like having him crash his car into a police department's parking lot while he has a literal suitcase of cocaine in his passenger seat. And that is not enough yeah. to put him away. Yeah. I want to talk about this guy's fucking apartment. Oh my God. God where he has like two separate pieces of art depicting his own face. God. The monogrammed pillows. The monogrammed pillows. And then. It, a coffee jar on his kitchen counter full of GHB. Uh, I thought I thought it was full of cocaine. Uh, no, I I thought it was roofie like roofies, but well, the, either because way. because um John is looking for coffee and then he says that then he says that Benton's using something stronger, which That's right. implied that that was cocaine in that jar. That's right. Well, he's still it's it's such a gross apartment. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's disgusting. It's, a, it's absolutely like it's absolutely reflective of the like narcissistic vapid soul uh-huh. that is Benton. Yeah. yeah. There's also some really good uh as uh Justin puts it Harold lore yeah. in this episode. Like the first scene is or, like the first scene is Harold going 
uh, I this is this is a common trope we'll see throughout the series of a uh, of one of them going into the workplace of a number to like get a fir- sort of like a first read on them and like blue jack their phone. We haven't discussed Whoa, blue jack. I was yet. just gonna say we haven't talked about blue jack. Oh my god, which is arguably I, I don't think I've heard that term for it yet. Um, I mean, it's what what they so. Listeners, if you're not watching wow. the show along with us and you're just doing this to the sonorous tones of our voice, um, a common thing that they do in this series, which is, I mean, fantastic. It's the most science. Fi- it's the most science fictional p- thing that happens. in It's this so entire much less show. plausible than that machine. They, they close. They clo- they, like they, they have a software to like hijack someone's phone and clone it onto their phone. Yeah. And, like, you can clone phones, but it takes more than, like, being within a six-foot radius. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and they will get way more bullshit with this. Eventually, it'll get to the thing where, like, John is just, like, across the room. He's just, like, pink, done. Yeah. (laughs) But they will – it will let them, like, track, listen. Like, it's basically just your phone becomes their bitch. And (laughs) – I feel it's, so bad for the battery life of all the of all the numbers. It never comes up. Yeah. That's what makes it fantastical. I believe that someone that can make a, a a legitimate AI could write something that could hijack your phone. What I don't believe is that they could do it in a way that wouldn't that wouldn't fuck your battery life, and that that would never come up. That's the part that's fantastic. Also, it's all blackberries, like. I mean, it's like almost so, all so I have a cell phone so. thing related to this episode. Um, there's a scene of the club where John thinks that someone has a gun. And so he like shoves it in the bathroom <laughs> That's and right. he pulls out a and cell phone a... and it's a fucking razor. Well, not even that. It's, it's an under, well, he's, he's fooled by the guys. The guy has one of these douchey, uh, like underarm, uh, man purses. Yeah. With a razor in it. And that's what fools so him. so this 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 episode takes place in 2011. I had, I had a I had the razor too. I had it in 2009. And in fact, it is the only phone I have ever broke. Uh, I too had a razor, uh, and I too broke it. But I broke many phones. Uh, I was hard on my phones until I started getting touchscreen phones and got paranoid about them. Only phone I ever broke up until that point was my Nokia. Oh, rewinding back to the the, the first scene of the episode here, where where Harold is meeting. Uh, yeah. Mini Megan. The first thing is that we learn we get we get an X-ray of Harold's deck, and I find it really interesting that Harold both probably can't get proper treatment for for this yeah. because it would be putting himself on the grid because it's a very specific entry, and won't because he's I like it won't because he's a workaholic. Yeah, I see. I'm not entirely convinced about that based off of like that he was able to get John patched up. No question asked. I think, I think it's because it's like, it's I like, he's able to get like, uh, I like somebody to poke around at them, but that's sort of like a very specific, like, I, I don't know what recovery for that looks like, but I imagine there would be some yeah. like, a, he doesn't have a standing appointment with a physical therapist. Yeah, exactly. I think is, is what we're talking about here. Yeah. He can probably score Vikes whenever he needs them, but I don't think he's getting a, uh, he doesn't have like a regular physical therapist or GP to to keep track of his injuries and stuff like that because that's a medical record he he doesn't want to I mean, he could establish. Prob- he could probably hide it under an alias, but I also think that Harold is that kind of person who just ignores 
doing long-term care for himself. Uh, yeah, agreed. That's a gnarly injury, though. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, when we get to what happened, that'll be uh, that'll be a whole thing. Um, I do, one of the things that I love is that, when, like, first of all, Harold is, I love this thing about Harold, is that he is the most, like, he is a dearly polite person, and I love that for him. He's just the nicest yeah. guy. And I, I like, when, when Meg is introducing herself, he says, how do you do? Which is just... <laughs> I just like it's yeah. all these yeah. little mannerisms that are just like to me personally are endearing. Well, and I love that like she fully admits that like the reason she's giving him pain meds is because he was nice to her. Yeah, and let me tell you, as a as a recovering addict, that's true. <laughs> that doctor. that's how it works. You don't yeah. score meds off a doctor by being like pathetic or having like the most accurate description of how your teeth hurt it's just treat the doctor like a human being and don't like make a big scene and nine times out of ten they'll they not anymore it's changed i know they don't they don't give away vicodins like fucking tic tacs like they used to uh but yeah you could go into any dentist and tell them your teeth hurt and if you were just like not a shit weed about it they'd give you like a, a handful of vicodins ah the good old days I, I felt like it was really solid acting, whether it was acting on Harold's part or acting on the actor's part. Both are really solid. The, yeah. the, um, the portrayal of chronic pain, I thought was quite good of the like, you know, where's your where's your pain on a you know, scale of one to five? Three on a good day. Subtle wince. Today is not a good day. Uh, yeah. I've... And the way that he's just like strained. Yeah. Um, it's very solid. Yeah. I know there's a lot of discussion around like having a non-disabled actor playing someone that's disabled uh, these days. But I think that he does a really great job with showing someone with a chronic injury in a really respectful way. Because it never is something that like defines the character and it's never something that is taken for granted. But it, it's, I think done in a really graceful way yeah that it's it's neither like fetishized as part of the like mm -hmm. long suffering herald and nor nor is it like he's fundamentally not prevented from you know contributing Doing. to the plot in every meaningful way yeah by this and you know in fact i think in some cases you know the the thing that we were talking about last episode with you know the way that he puts on the like facade of being the harmless nerd to get information. I think the injury helps with that because, you know, he's, you know, stiff and got a bit of a limp and like, it makes him yeah. seem non-threatening. Yeah. Agreed. Uh, do we want to do our headphone moment now? Oh, yeah. Sorry. We got to do this. And, uh, is this the only time Busco betrays Fitch? Or, uh, yeah, I, I was like, I was thinking because it's like, Harold's like, your association with Detective Fusco may lead to him like fighting back, and I'm like, mm -hmm. I don't think it ever does. No, it's the opposite. <laughs> it's so, it makes Fusco a better person. I, I kind of love that. It's so funny because I'm just like, this is the only time he ever betrays John. I think, and it's like, and even then, it's like half-hearted to like a bunch of. Boys. Well, it's only because they're threatening his kid, yeah. and like if he had had and. The first thing he does is he goes to John and he's like, help. And John's like, eh, fuck off. <laughs> if he had actually like, because that's the thing that's so gross is like in these early episodes, 
John treats Fusco like shit. And Fusco's like, oh, really? Oh, fuck. Like, let's, let's let Otto really have bad. the, the, the like, victory. Now, now I know how it feels. Yeah. Um, we were just talking uh, about we, how John treats Fusco like shit. In this episode, he's like, the, these guys come come to him and, like, Fusco goes to, to John and John's like, wow, that sucks for you. And he's like, but, 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 but. And John, John's like, don't get killed, I guess. At the same time, John is like weirdly nihilistic in those conversations. Like there's that conversation where Fusco's like, what's stopping me from turning you in? And John's just like, I don't know. What What is what is stopping you? And, and he doesn't seem to be going for like a gotcha. He's like, I mean, you could just turn me in. Like you could just do it. Well, I think I think the implication there is like you could try and then I'd kill you. Like, yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, I think it's. It's a very weird facet of these episodes, these these first couple episodes here, uh, before they really dial in what that relationship is going to yeah. be. And yeah. after this episode, they like they, they they land on it. Like once Fusco and Carter become partners, they really dial in that like <laughs> Fusco's like his little like. I don't know. I don't even know how to describe their weird yeah, relationship once Fusco ends so, up in, in homicide. Yeah, also, Aaron cut this, but I'm really enjoying at the point I am at now where, like, um, where uh, John is, like, parent-trapping them against each other. <laughs> so fucking funny. It's, I can't wait to talk about that. It's so fucking and the, funny. Yeah. I also love that, like... Uh, Fusco will get a call and he's like, uh, it's my, uh, it's my ex. I got to take this. And Carter will like get a call and she's like, uh, it's my, uh, it's my kid. I got to take this. And the two of them are both talking to like Finch and Reese on different lines. Okay. Um, really? Well, speaking of, speaking of Fusco and, um, and like, we've been talking a lot about Carter's like hyper competence. One of the things I really enjoy in this episode is that in their first interaction, you can see that Carter is immediately sizing Fusco up and sees exactly what kind of cop he is yeah. instantly. Yeah. And that really like drives their initial dynamics because like she's like I don't trust you because you're fucking dirty and like I can tell by like the yeah. vibe you give off. Yeah. No, she reads Fusco like a book uh in this initial in, in these initial encounters. Um, but I also like where they will take that relationship. Um, you're a couple of episodes ahead, so you've seen that it doesn't stay that way. Like, yeah. And I think that's one of the, one of my favorite things in this, in the show is Fusco and Carter's, uh, relationship. And at least to the point that I've seen, like, it's, it's interesting that, you know, as much as John has sort of screwed up Fusco's life. Let's put it again gently. He's also like he got Fosco a major promotion and like you know he's giving Fosco a path to like he's still working with somebody who's not the police but at least he's not like blatantly corrupt anymore. Mhm. Yeah. I I really like Fosco so far. He's sort of like he's just yeah, your surprise. He's a surprise fave. Yeah, you called him the uh the anti-Garibaldi. It's so accurate. And it's so accurate because Garibaldi's like, he's unrepentantly a cop and 
he's like smug about it. And the thing about Fusco is Fusco is a cop for the right reasons and is he's as dirty as Garibaldi is. Oh no, he doesn't he wants to he be has less pretensions about it. Like he, he actually is dirtier yeah. than what Garibaldi is because he's like he's in with like organized crime and like yeah. drugs. Yeah, he's dirtier than Garibaldi is, but he's a better person than Garibaldi is. And they're like on like crossing trajectories kind of thing. Yeah. I don't know. It works. It, it works. I, I like it. I think it's also in terms of audience perception, like you're supposed to think that like Garibaldi is a good guy and we're kind of supposed to think that Fusco is a little bit of a piece of shit because he kind of is, yeah. but like, you yeah. know, he's a piece of, he's a likable piece yeah, of he, shit. He is, whereas Garibaldi is, uh, I'm going to put air quotes here. Nice guy. Like, <laughs> Fusco. In so many senses of that phrase. Yeah. Like Fusco has, Fusco is like, he's a piece of shit who is honestly trying to be good and like, yeah, which like, I think that's like the best way I can put it. It is like, yeah, he's a piece of shit. who's trying to do good. Yeah. yeah. Do we want to talk about the, the, the sexual assault, sexual assault themes in this episode? Cause I have a few things to note. On yeah. That. It's, it's, I mean, it's pretty rough. Like I don't have specific thoughts on it. It's just, it's, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to talk about it, but I don't, yeah. uh, well, don't feel qualified to comment on it heavily. Yeah. I don't want to like, you know, delve super deeply into it. The one thing I was really afraid at the start of the episode that the twist was going to be that the doctor was who was supplying Benton with the roofies. Uh, I'm really hmm. glad that it didn't go that way. That was not something that I had in my Yeah. Uh, that that was that was what kind of stuck out stuck out to me as like one of the obvious twists that you know it could have gone with of it'd be a way to turn the number into a perpetrator in a different way from what I mean they they did end up going that route but in a different way yeah oh my god Finch how fucking naive are you though <laughs> Jesus Christ um, when he's like. Why wasn't he arrested? Oh, I don't know. Like, Benton was an athlete at college. Like, yeah. <laughs> what the what the fuck, Finch? Yeah. Um, uh, but weirdly, like the writers are a lot less naive than Finch, which is fairly refreshing. Um, like you know that the the scene in the like sexual assault or trauma um support group. Ugh, is yeah. is rough stuff, but like the the person who's up there talking about how you know she has to see the person who assaulted her at work every day, but she can't turn him in because she needs the job is like that that's that's some rough stuff, but you can tell that like the writers get it in a way that like yeah I think a lot of television of the era didn't. Law and order sexual assault, which is always like dramatized really heavily. And then there's a little more respectful of reality, which I think is where POI lands. Yeah. Yeah. That I felt like it was you know, a fairly, I want to say like pragmatic portrayal. Yeah. But I'm just like, Jesus Christ, Finch. How, 
how can you be so naive? What the we'll hell? See. Like, you know everything. How do you not know this? That's, see, that's a thing that you'll find that actually somebody will comment on later on in this show. Someone will say something like, you're like the biggest goddamn dweeb. How are you going to teach a computer to like understand people? <laughs> uh, do we have much of anything we want else we want to discuss or... I don't think so. All right, time to time for the face of this episode. Our number of this week is played by the talented, lovely Linda Cardellini. Yeah. So, I mean, she's done everything. Uh, like, I think most nerds know her. Like, would maybe know her from like, like she wasn't. She's she plays uh, Hawkeye's wife in the MCU, but she's done like so much voice acting stuff. The thing that that I like, I texted Otta over over like finding it out is that she voices a character called hot dog water in the scooby-doo series mystery inc oh god she's actually now the the voice of velma wow beautiful hot dog water you need okay i know what our next show is (laughs) because we need we need to uh we need to pick something that jude hasn't seen but mystery egg is obvious. We could have we could have Jude's kid. It has an ongoing. It has both monster of the week and ongoing oh plot. My God. Yeah, no, I've seen the show. My son's watched it. I just don't remember the hot dog water character. Uh, yeah, she's like a girl who's like the daughter of like a carnival owner. Velma's question mark question mark girlfriend oh, question mark. Oh yeah, yeah. I do kind of remember this character now. But yeah, that, that's that's a, like it was a fun thing of like I know this. Oh, that's where. Yeah, that was yeah. that was fun. <laughs> also, Finch's alias um, in Birdette does is not a type of bird, but it does have the word "bird" in it, so I think it yeah. counts. Yeah, I'll allow I, it. I'd say so. <laughs> yeah, I mean, maybe maybe he was rushed. <laughs> yeah. All right. Anything else we want to talk about? No, I think cool. we're good. Um. All right. So that's all we have for this week. Tune in next time. We are going to be covering episodes. Uh, Five and six of season one, Judgment, and The Fix. Until next time, you are being watched. The Babylon Project is an independent production. All views expressed on the show are our own. Clips from the original show remain property of the original owner. Music information can be found in the show notes. The rest of the show is licensed under a Creative Commons 4.0 share like no derivatives license. Da 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 da.